Good morning, Abundant Life. Praise God to be able to be here together. Now, I trust your Easter celebration last weekend was as blessed as mine. And in fact, if you were here at 10 o'clock last weekend, we could all testify together, can we not, that the Lord met us and that He was here. So there's lots to give thanks for. If you weren't here, let me just say that Anton and the praise team did a marvelous job of being led by the Spirit, ushering us into God's presence. The orchestra that had been put together was phenomenal. And just the beauty that God provides through music was ours to live in and express and sing along with. So we thank God for Anton, the praise team, and then Dami, who's part of our Safari Kids ministry, came up with the kids. And yes, we did have Easter eggs on stage, but she used that to talk about the resurrection, what Jesus did rising from the grave, and the fact that that was a marvelous and the ultimate expression of his love for us. And then, of course, Pastor Marcus came and brought the word that God had put on his heart to talk about the empty tomb and what that means for us, that Jesus is alive. And so all that we give God thanks and praise for. But one of the reasons we're able to celebrate like that is because we have the benefit of hindsight. We have the full scriptures that tell us exactly what Jesus' death and resurrection means for us. That it means that we have forgiveness, that it means that we have eternal life, that it means that he's given us his Holy Spirit to live in this in-between time from the time he left a little bit after his resurrection to the time he's coming back. We have all that knowledge But you know what? Jesus' disciples on that Easter Sunday did not have anything like that. In fact, if you read the text, you find that they're pretty confused, even though they've seen the empty tomb. They don't know really what all this means yet. And so Luke tells us that Jesus spends the next 40 days on earth before he ascended to his father, being alongside of them, walking with them, explaining just what this meant. And so that's our series. We're about to embark on a six-week series called Renew, From Confusion to Resolve. And if you look at what Jesus does during that time, he gets their heads back into Scripture. He points out the fact that what we call the Old Testament, what were Scriptures to them, actually speak to Jesus Christ, whom they've been following, as the Messiah. And he has to do some restoration work, doesn't he? He has to restore Peter, who denied him. So he's doing some restoration. He has to do some reconnection like he does with Thomas, who's gone down in history as what? Doubting Thomas. There's all kinds of confusion going on in the heart of the disciples that God would use to spread his gospel throughout the world. They're starting with confusion, but they're going to get to resolve. They're starting in a place that I'm not sure what your plan is, the Lord, but you're bringing me to a place of preparation where then you will then launch us into the world. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the recollection, the restoration. We're going to look at reconnection. There's a time where Jesus takes his disciples up on the mountain and gives them what we call the Great Commission. But some of you Bible scholars know that technically that's the recommission because he'd actually sent them out earlier on in their ministry. First the 12, then the 70 to go proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God and to heal the sick and to cast out demons. Now he's doing it for keeps, as we would say. So Jesus does these things through the 40 days that he walks on earth with his disciples. And we're going to start that series today. I'm going to talk about the road to Emmaus and really the importance that Luke points out of understanding the word of God. If we're going to understand what God's purpose is and plan is for us. And then next couple weeks, I'll be uh, other members of the preaching team will speak to the next steps in that journey, that journey of renewal. 
Pastor Zach will come in the middle of that to speak his own word that God has given him, especially for this congregation. And then after him, we'll finish up with weeks four, five and six. So I hope you can make this your priority as we together as a church family called Abundant Life journey together on this idea of being renewed, going from confusion, because these are confusing times for us to some extent, to resolve. Amen. Amen. So let's bring our time together to the Lord in prayer and then we'll stand and read our text. Jesus, thank you for all that you do in us and through us. Thank you for the privilege of being called your children. Thank you for your work on the cross that gives us a hope and a future. Would you open our ears to hear what you would say to each one of us today? Would you open our eyes to see what you would show us? That we would know our part. Lord, as we are in places of doubt or confusion ourselves, would you move us to resolve and to knowledge of you? Just make us more like you've always intended us to be. We give you our lives today for that purpose. In your name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to read about Luke's account of the road to Emmaus. It actually is the only account in the Bible that speaks of this. It's found in Luke 24. It's a fairly lengthy passage, so I'm going to break it up into two parts. We're going to, it starts in verse 13 of Luke, 20, of Luke 24, and I'm going to read through verse 27. And then later on in the message, I'll pick it up from verse 28 and go through verse 35. Okay, Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. I'm reading out of the NIV. Thank you for standing to honor the word of God. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Then he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Please be seated. Can you imagine what a powerful scene that must have been to be walking along the road? And what does the text tell us that these guys are doing? They're talking about all the things, but it also gives us an insight into their mood. They are sad. They are downcast. They are confused because they really don't know what's going on. They had hoped that Jesus would be the one who was going to redeem Israel. That's what Cleopas explains. Had hoped he was going to be the one who who liberated Israel from the Roman occupation. The Redeemer was going to be the one who actually restored the fortunes and the prosperity of the nation of Israel. 
That is what God had promised them in the promised land if they'd been obedient, but they weren't. And so now they were suffering. And just when they had their hopes up again, their hopes were dashed. Why? Because he was handed over to the authorities and he was crucified. So Cleopas is saying we'd hoped in this, but he's gone the way of other messiahs who claim to be the messiah. He just got killed. But wait, there's new news. He, we thought he was dead, but now we hear some of the women have amazed us. That they went and they found the tomb empty. And then they ran into some angels who told them that not only is the tomb empty, but he's alive. But we don't see him yet. They're, they're, their hopes have been crushed, but there's a little faint good news, but it's not fully expressed. We're just confused. Are you confused by circumstances in your life? Part of the implication of what's going on here is that God didn't come through. We thought it was going to be the Messiah, God's Messiah, but it turns out he wasn't. We thought my circumstances would be resolved the way I thought God wanted them to be, but they're not. So I got something going with God. I'm a little disappointed. I'm wrestling with some stuff. I've got confusing circumstances. This is the road to Emmaus that they find themselves on. This is where Jesus begins to meet them. How would you describe a road to Emmaus that you might be on? Maybe you're on one right now. Maybe it has to do with a financial setback or politics that you're experiencing at work. You're like, man, I'm just trying to do an honest day's work. I'm trying to live the way God wants me to. But there's all this stuff that keeps me from doing my job or getting ahead. Maybe you've had some health news that is shocking and surprising that just two weeks ago you thought you were in the peak of health. Now you got some tests back. Maybe you're wrestling with a broken relationship, one that's hugely strained or has snapped and broken. Confusion about what's going on. Disappointment with God about why he would allow such a thing. We all have some kind of road to Emmaus experience. If you don't have one now, praise God, let me say you will get one. Because that's just the way things go. In this life, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world, says the Lord. But nevertheless, we find ourselves on a road from time to time, don't we? We find ourselves in a place where we need to experience Jesus as Cleopas and his friend do. Now, this is actually Easter Sunday. It says it happens on the very day in the afternoon. We don't necessarily know a lot about Cleopas. We know that he must have hung out with the twelve because he seems to have heard the report from the women who came and said that the tomb was empty and that some of their group went and found that, as the women had said. So he's part of that community of disciples. And yet he's just in this place of like, Lord, what's going on? And then we begin to see how Jesus comes and ministers to them. What do we notice if you start noticing the text? I think the first thing, and, and really I just want to make a few points in our time together this morning, the, the, the starting point of the road to, to Emmaus is that Jesus meets them where they are. It says that he comes alongside of them as they're walking on the road and talking. He doesn't stand over here and say, hey, guys, come this way. He doesn't say, you know, I'm still in Jerusalem appearing to other people, but you guys are heading out of town, seven miles out of town. He rather comes alongside and he meets them. And who initiates the conversation? Jesus. So when we're in that place of saying, Lord, I'm confused about my circumstances. Lord, I'm not sure what you're doing. And frankly, if I'm honest, I'm a little disappointed. We should see that Jesus comes alongside of us 
just as he did these two guys. And he asked them, he initiates the conversation. What are you discussing together as you walk along? You know, when he comes alongside of us, he's asking us this question. What's on your heart? What's in your mind? What are you going through? What's got you down? The psalmist says in verse in chapter 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. If you're in a particularly tough place, are you seeing God, Jesus coming alongside of you and asking you what's going on? How are you feeling? Share your heart with me. Now, it says our text says that Cleopas and his companion were prevented from seeing him. And so you get this kind of interesting thing where Cleopas says to Jesus in response to his question, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there these days? You got to love the irony in this passage. Cleopas is talking to Jesus about Jesus. He's saying, Jesus, you don't know he's Jesus. How is it that you don't know what's going on with Jesus? And sometimes that irony is really true in our own life. Sometimes we say to the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God that you don't know what's going on. You don't care. You don't love me. We're talking to Jesus as if he's not Jesus. We're ascribing to God things that are not of God. Now, out of his grace, he recognizes that we're doing it out of our own sense of hurt, which is why he asks the question, what are you talking about? Which is why he asks us the question, what's on your heart? So it's okay to share what's going on with you. That's not throwing off on the Lord. That's not being in any way disobedient. But let's not ascribe to the Lord motives and, and characteristics that, that aren't his. You know, it's okay. Cleopas opens up to the Lord and he said in verse 21, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. The implication is he's not the one because he got himself killed. He was handed over and crucified. He's still wrestling with that confusion, with that huge disappointment. Don't we say that to the Lord sometimes? I had hoped that you were going to get me the job. I had hoped that you would heal my body. I had hoped that you'd provide me a godly spouse by now. I had hoped that we would have been able to start a family. I had hoped that you would have kept my loved ones safe, that you would have ended injustice. We had hoped in these things. We can say that. That comes from an honest place of confusion and hurt. David says, actually David doesn't say, but Psalm 42 says, My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? You know, sometimes when we're in that place of hurting, our so-called friends and neighbors kind of heap it on. Man, I thought you were a Christian. Man, it seems like your life's a lot worse now that you're a Christian than when we were out there at the club or out there hanging out. That hurts, doesn't it? Or they say, I thought you were strong in the Lord. What's with this? It's okay to have tears be your food for a while. If you're beginning to see, one of the things I want to show you today is that the Psalms are our entry point so often to the heart of God. They give us, they give the opportunity to express what we're feeling. Because if we're really honest, sometimes we don't want to come to God out of our hurt. We prefer to medicate. Some of us watch TV. Some of us do other things. Some of us get really busy around the house when we're hurting. But Jesus is inviting 
these two guys into conversation, into connection, into communion with him. And Cleopas is being honest when he says, we had hoped. But now it's Jesus' turn to respond. And how does he respond? So the first thing just to notice is that Jesus, the starting point is that Jesus meets us where we are. The second point I want to make is that on the road, Jesus meets us through Scripture. He meets us through the Word of God. Look at verse 25 and 26. Jesus responds to what Cleopas has said. How foolish you are and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Isn't this interesting that Cleopas has just poured his heart out about his disappointment and Jesus kind of hits him with a rebuke? That seems a little tough, doesn't it? Like, I don't want to hear that. Maybe that's one of the reasons we don't naturally go to the Lord sometimes when we're hurting. Because we're afraid of what he might say. And what he's saying essentially to Cleopas and his companion is that you guys have been walking with me. You guys have been part of this discipleship community. I have unfolded the scriptures to you faithfully, bit by bit, year by year. And you're in this place right now where you don't see it or you don't believe it. He says you're acting foolishly. What does Proverbs tell us the fool is? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Is he talking about being an atheist? No. He's talking about, the fool says in his heart, I don't believe that God has any control or any say over how I live. Now, I might be able to pass a theological exam. I might be able to say that Jesus is the Son of God, that God the Father created all things through Jesus, that by Jesus my sins are forgiven. That's passing the exam. If I don't live my life in that reality, I am living as the foolish person does. I'm saying in my heart there is no God. And so he's saying, Jesus, in his gentle but firm way, you guys are living like fools. You're living as if the scriptures aren't true. You're living as if you don't know what the scriptures say about me. But then being the loving and gracious Lord that he is, he begins to unfold them. Now, don't we live like Cleopas and his companions sometimes? Yeah, I think so. Aren't there times where we live like, like the gospel isn't true or like Jesus' authority doesn't count? Some of us have little places in our lives where we do that on a regular basis. I know earlier on in our marriage, Vicki and I, there were times where when we would travel, Vicki's family's all in England, so we would, when we got to get over there, we would, you know, it's a big deal. You got to get flights and you got to, it's international, you got to bring your passport, you got to bring extra suitcases. I brought extra suitcases. No. You got to bring extra suitcases. You got to do a lot of logistics to get there. And I went into sort of this kind of hyper control mode. We have some friends that, that also are like that, and she called her spouse a, a traveled Nazi. I don't think I got to that place where you're just going, hey, come on, we got to get there, got to get to the plan, got to get to the plane, got to get there on time, got to make sure that we get all our bags, as many as we can, in the overhead luggage so we don't have to check them. You know the kind of person. And we are not ever going to deviate from that plan. The plan is the plan. And so when the little PA system comes on, you're all in your seat and you're ready to go. And they say, hey, we're overbooked today. If any of you would volunteer to give up your seat, you can get on a flight like three months later and we'll give you a coupon for 150 bucks. And uh, we'd really appreciate it if you consider that. So I would never do that. We'd say, no, we're not ever doing that. And so that's our plan. That's how we travel. We got from point A to point B in great fun. Shape, at least from my perspective. I don't think I was blessing Vicky or when Sarah came along that I was blessing Sarah. And one day God brought it to my attention that I was living like a fool as if somehow being gracious 
being patient, being kind, didn't apply to me when I had to travel, when I had to get the family from point A to point B. And God did it in just his own delicious way. There was a time we were in London, heading back on a flight to San Francisco, and, and I was out doing something important like buying snacks or a newspaper. And Vicky was in the line, and then the airline representative came and said, hey, we're overbooked. If any of you, you would care to voluntarily give up your seats, we can put you on the flight that's 90 minutes later, and we'll give you two free tickets round trip to come back. But Vicky, being well-trained by her husband, <laughs> said, no way, we're not going to do that. And then with great pride, she said, guess what happened? I'm like, what happened? Two free tickets, 2000 bucks worth of airfare for a 90-minute delay, and I didn't take it. Aren't you happy? <laughs> no, I'm not happy. <laughs> Forgive me, Lord, for living like a fool. But some of us have those places, don't we? Some of you, when company comes over, you're like, okay, kids, snap to it, get ready. Your, your anointing has left the building. Because you're operating in that place like the Lord just doesn't care about what's going on in your house. That he won't give you the grace. That suddenly it all depends on what people think about your home. Some of you are going to go back to jobs on Monday, tomorrow, and you're going to... Be in a different mode. Because you know what? It's kill or be killed on my job. And you can't really be that, that Christ-like figure and expect to be employed or expect to do well or expect to get ahead. That's living foolishly. And Jesus says to Cleopas and his companion, how foolish you are and how slow of heart. As men and women of God, let us not live foolishly in any area of our life. Let us not be slow of heart to believe what the scriptures say about God's provision, his protection, about the way that his favor goes forward in any situation, about the grace that will cover all things in our lives. Let's not live like fools, but rather let's come before the Lord. If that's your place uh, where you've just got something that you just continually go into human mode instead of grace mode. You've got to bring that before the Lord and let him do what? Just as he's doing with Cleopas, unfold the scriptures. So the Lord rebukes him, and then he takes him to the place of unfolding the scriptures. And he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, it says that Jesus talked to them about everything. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, a seven-mile journey... If you're walking two and a half miles an hour, it takes you almost three hours to get there. These guys are getting a great Bible study, a walk through the Bible experience from Jesus himself about what the scriptures say about him. Can you imagine what they felt? We don't have to imagine because a little bit later, we'll, the text tells us how their hearts were aflame with, with what God had done. But Jesus is unfolding what the scriptures say about himself, saying, what is the, what do the scriptures tell us? Beginning with Moses and the prophets. Moses had written the first five books of the Old Testament. So starting with Genesis, starting with God's plan to reclaim mankind. My, the Bible that I read from is 100, 1140 pages. By page three, man is in trouble. He's already fallen. He's already sinned. He's already out of the garden. Chapter three of Genesis. And chapter four starts the way back where God is making one provision after another to bring the people back into a place where he can have fellowship with them once again, where they can be the people he's always intended them to be. 
And the Lord makes a people. He makes covenants with his people. And Jesus is part of that. And then we get to Exodus, where we hear about the Passover. Some of you have Jewish friends that celebrated the Passover this past week, just before, or two weeks ago, just before we celebrated Easter. And in the Passover, they're commemorating what? They're commemorating the time that the angel death passed over all the Israelites who had put the blood of the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, over their doorposts. And that was prefiguring what Jesus would do. And all of us who would put his own, claim his own blood over our lives, that we would have eternal life and that eternal death would pass over us. Because of what the Lord did and because of what Moses taught and showed the Israelites, we're finding Jesus' story in the story of the Israelites in Exodus 3. And that's Moses. And then he gets to the prophets. And in the prophets, you know that in Isaiah, Jesus in Luke 4, Luke tells us that Jesus announces his mission, quoting Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed fear free and to declare the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus, Luke 4, quoting Isaiah 61. That's the mission that God had given Jesus. The method by which he would accomplish that mission is Isaiah 53, 5. But he he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We don't know the actual content of what Jesus is explaining to these guys. But he is walking them through. Moses and the prophets. And later on when he teaches the disciples the writings. All the history of Israel. Showing in each and every place where what we call the Old Testament is speaking about Jesus Christ. The Bible says that Jesus is the risen Lord. The Bible gives us the truth about who Jesus is. What's the truth about Jesus? Do you want to know about Jesus? Then you read your Bible. You know, in our society there's all kinds of Folk that are trying to say, this is who Jesus really was. He's not the guy who appears in the Bible. He's, he is who he says we are, he is. There was a group of guys that got together in the 80s and 90s called the Jesus Seminar. What did these guys do? They decided which parts of the Gospels were legitimate or true and which weren't, based on all kinds of fancy textual criticism and all kinds of methodology. They would actually take a vote, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, on what was legit and what wasn't. The Bible is the revealed word of God. It's not subject to a vote. It's not subject to man's opinions. It's not subject to anything that God, that man can do. Then some of you, you had relatives and things like that talking to you about how great the Da Vinci Code is. Remember that story? Something about the actual Jesus that nobody knows about. And it was pretty popular. It was made into a movie. Now, we don't have to throw off on the Da Vinci Code. Hopefully, you guys had a fair amount of good conversations about who the real Christ is because of somebody who said he's not the real Christ or somebody who said, oh, I got the real story. And later, uh, recently, there was a clip on the Colbert report of a guy who's a professor who somehow says there's so many inconsistencies in the gospel accounts of who Christ is that we cannot believe the scriptures. If we can't believe the scriptures, we can't really know who the real Jesus is. Let me say the Bible is the book that reveals who Christ is. It doesn't seek to prove, although there's plenty of evidence that, about how Jesus 
fulfilled prophecy, but it just shows that he is the son of God. Doesn't seek to prove God in the beginning. God first four verses of the scriptures. The Bible is the revelation of who God is and who his son is. It tells us what is true about Jesus. What is true about Jesus? In some of you grew up in Christian traditions where you had to recite what a creed, you know, a creed about the Lord and about God, the father. And what that is when in the early centuries, when people were not very literate, when there are a lot of different ideas about who Christ was, godly men, biblical men searched the scriptures to say, who do the scriptures reveal God to be? And out of that, in the fourth century came a creed that is shared by all the Protestant faith and the Catholic faith and the Orthodox faith. And it says this. We believe about Jesus. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and it is seated at the right hand of the father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. Amen. Every one of those points is in the Bible. Every this is guys just trying to summarize for their churches an easy way to understand who the Bible says Jesus is. If you haven't memorized that creed, I encourage you to do so. It's just, if your kids haven't, it's a great way to know in a very shorthand way, kind of cliff notes, if you will, who Jesus is and to marvel at who God has made him to be. So the Bible tells us who the Lord is. Jesus is unfolding that to Cleopas and his companion along the way. The Bible also tells us what's true about us. Oh, I'm not sure I want to see that part sometimes, huh? That we not only were once dead in our trespasses, but we were made alive in Christ. That we're part of God's family. See what great love the Father has lavished upon us. That we should be called what? Children of God. We belong in a family that is eternal, that in many ways is a lot better than our own human family. Praise God. This is a church family that we're in right now. It says that we have a new nature. That trumps the old nature if we what? If we walk by the spirit of God. Yes, we still have a flesh that's active, but it doesn't have to have power over us. But if we walk by his spirit, we'll live. In other words, we are renewed because of what Jesus has done. So the scripture tells us not only the truth about Christ, but it tells us the truth about us. It says in Colossians 3, 1, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. A little bit later, Paul, being very practical and the good pastor that he is in verse in chapter three, verse 22, walks it out in a practical way. Speaking of slaves, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Slavery was a feature of Bible times, New Testament times, Greco-Roman world. There were people that were slaves, but they were becoming Christian. And there were people that were slave owners and they were becoming Christian. And Paul is talking about how they should live. And so he says, 
Guess what? Slaves, you don't just work for your master. You do. But you're actually under new management. You actually work for the risen Jesus Christ. That's who you're to please. And so you work as unto the Lord. And some of us need that word for our own jobs. Some of us wish we were under new management at the job site. You know, if you're really honest, some of you are praying for that person to leave, get promoted, have something, you know, to get a transfer, do something. Because they're working your nerves, because you think they're unqualified, all that stuff. This text is saying your real boss is Jesus. That your real purpose at work, yes, he'll help you provide for your family, but your real purpose is to honor and glorify him. And sometimes you do that when the situation is hard, when you're getting treated unjustly or unfairly. That doesn't mean you don't get to speak up. You do so, but you do so respectfully. So he's saying you're under new management. Don't embarrass God by how you work. If you've got a job that requires you to be there on time, be on time. If you can't get there on time, become a software programmer. They don't have to be there on time. There is no time. They work hard. Oh, believe me, that's the industry I came from. So you're kind of like 10 in the morning to 9 at night. So you work hard. You just don't have to start at 8 o'clock. It's a great deal. But whatever your job requirement is, work as unto the Lord. The, the Word of God tells us who we are and what we're supposed to do. The Word of God helps sustain us as we do that. The Word of God tells us what's true about us as a church. You know, in this time of confusion that we're in at Abundant Life in some ways about, Lord, okay, we're in a new season. I know you're there, kind of like Cleopas and his companion were feeling. We want to hear from God. He's meeting us where we are. We want him to unfold the scriptures to us that we would see him through that. The scriptures that say, I have a hope and a future. The scriptures that say, when only two or three are gathered together, there I am in their midst. And that I am sending you out into this thing called Silicon Valley in this time called the 21st century, where this world is kind of crazy in so many ways. Very arrogant place to be, hyper-sexualized, hyper-self-focused, and unknowing of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am sending you, members of Abundant Life, out into that group to be God's vessels of love and mercy and compassion and forgiveness and to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. As we get together, as we let the Lord unfold his scriptures, specific ones for us in this season, he will be faithful and he will call us to be faithful in response. The third thing I see, and I'll close with this, starting point is that Jesus meets us where we are. When we're on the road, he unfolds who he is through the scriptures. You know, it's interesting here that he is preventing or somehow they can't see Jesus personally. They only know him through the word of God. We're going to go read the rest of the part right now because we hear their response to the word of God. I'm going to pick it up at verse 28 of chapter 24 and I'll continue to the end. So Jesus has just unfolded what the scriptures tell about himself. And in verse 28, he says, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in, excuse me, so he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, 
Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. See, they don't see Jesus until he breaks the bread. They don't see Jesus even as he is showing himself through his word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. This is what John says as he opens up his gospel. And he is saying in a very real way that when you pick up your Bible, when you open it up, it's not just words on a page, but it is an encounter with the living God. The living, breathing God. And he doesn't show Cleopas and his companion who he is relationally or in the flesh at that moment because he wants them to see him through as he is in this word. And that is a word for us. Don't just go off somewhere and say, Lord, I just need a touch from you personally. That's that's okay to do. We know his spirit is in us. But sometimes we rely too much on a kind of a, a request, a desire, a mandate for a personal encounter with him when he says, I have a personal encounter for you. It's called open up your word. You'll find me here. Find me in these pages. Ask God to show you himself. Ask him to show, Lord, show me who you are and what you're saying in my situation. Now, by the way, not everybody's a reader. I understand that. I had a work colleague. I went over to his house one time, beautiful bookcase. I don't know what wood it was. It was nicely polished. Had two books in it. And one was like a programming manual for a DVD player. He just wasn't a reader kind of guy. He was a man of action. He liked doing stuff. That's great. If you don't like reading, you like listening. Download some scripture on your MP3. Watch the Bible story if it's faithful. There's a lot of versions out there now that are films of the life of Christ and they have the gospel word for word. However you take the word of God in, take the word of God in. So you don't have to be a reader, but take it in some way, shape or form. Let the Lord speak to you about you. Let him show you who he is through this word. Final thing just on that as a practical recommendation is to memorize parts of Scripture. You know, the, Moses, when he was writing to, to the Israelites, he said, write these on your heart. Write them down. Teach them to your children. In our Safari Kids ministry, we have a regular practice of Scripture memory. In our growth groups, we have a regular practice of Scripture memory. Why? Because Scripture is what? It's like a two-edged sword, says Hebrews. It's sharp. Nobody wants to use a dull knife or a dull axe. You're just going to hurt yourself. Nobody wants to use the word of God if you're just kind of winging it. And sort of, I think kind of talks about Jesus sort of saying some good stuff, I think. No, you've got to know what the scripture says about Jesus. Because people are going to ask you. And you're going to have to tell them. At one time in my work, uh, there's a guy. Uh, we were both kind of this little informal junior training program. So it was early on in our careers. And he was a college graduate. And I was a college graduate. And we thought we were the all, the, all that. And he wasn't a believer and I was. So we'd have these great theological debates. And he'd say, well, what about, I don't know if I can believe in Jesus. And I'd come back and, and I was, you know, I'd read evidence demands a verdict. And we were talking about apologetics and we were talking about philosophy. And I made absolutely zero progress for the kingdom of God. Then one day he came and he said, you know, Gloria over in Billing, she's a Christian. I said, okay, we'll go talk to Gloria. Now, Gloria hadn't been to college. I don't know what she did over in Billing. Lovely woman of God. And he came back a little bit later. 
I said, Al, how'd that, you know, how was your talk? He's like, wow. I mean, what do you mean, wow? I mean, like, Gloria is no philosopher. Gloria probably hasn't read evidence that man's a verdict. You know what Gloria did? She quoted scriptures about who Jesus was and what he came to do. And my good friend Al, who had all this philosophical knowledge, was a really bright guy, had nothing to say against the power of the word of God. She was using real weaponry called the double-edged sword of the Lord. I was using kind of man-made weapons called my very, very reduced mind, which I thought was kind of big at the time. But God showed me that, through that, that this is the sword of the Spirit. This is why we memorize it. This is why we take it in. So when we do that, we get to that third point. And what's the third point? The third point is that the return journey on the road to Emmaus is that we tell others about our experience with Christ. We tell others about who Jesus is. This is exactly what Cleopas and his friend do. Jesus reveals himself. They finally see who he is because he breaks the bread, which is that symbol of sacrifice and fellowship and his provision. Bread is such a powerful symbol in the New Testament. And so they recognize Jesus. And it says that they get up immediately because Jesus is, he just vanishes from them. They get up and even though it's dark and it's unsafe to travel seven miles back to Jerusalem, they go because they want to tell the disciples, the eleven, what they've seen. And that's what real witnessing is, isn't it? Now, you don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to commit Lee Strobel's books to memory in order to be an effective witness, to be a good witness for Christ. You just have to talk to your friends about your experience with Jesus. And oh, by the way, you don't necessarily need a gnarly testimony either. Our daughter, Sarah, when she was in high school, would say, oh, so-and-so has a gnarly testimony. Well, what's a gnarly testimony? It's the kind of testimony you hear at revivals and you hear at promise keepers and big conferences that you go to. It's it's usually a guy who says, my life was an absolute ruin. I was into drugs. I was selling drugs. I did time. I treated people really badly. But God met me and he lifted me up and he gave the word and then he gave me this awesome preaching ministry. And now I'm traveling around the world preaching the word of God and seeing thousands of people come to Christ. I'm about to be on TV. That is a gnarly testimony. Now, I love those testimonies. There's a reason why those guys and those gals are in these conferences. But if we're not careful, we can think, well, I don't have a gnarly testimony. I came to faith at four. I was a pretty good kid. I got reasonably good grades. Um, You know, what's my big testimony? We can say that. But here, everybody has a testimony who has an experience of Jesus Christ. Everyone who walks with the Lord, everyone who talks about their own road to Emmaus experience and how God came alongside of them, opened up the scriptures that they would see him, see his comfort, see his power, see his ability to persevere. Everybody who can testify to that can be an effective witness, can be God's person. You can be God's person at your work. You can be God's person in your extended family just by doing that. I came to faith, I shudder to think, over... Almost 40 years ago. Very few people are interested in that long ago in my life. You don't have to laugh because it's true for you too. Very few people are interested in how you came to Christ. They're much more interested in how Christ is making a difference in your life today. That's the testimony. That's what Cleopas and his friend are doing. They're just talking about a Bible study in the way that the Lord met them just hours before. 
What can you say to your colleagues? What can you say to your neighbors tomorrow if God gives you that chance about how God met you today or last week or last month when you're going through that stuff? That's the testimony that's being talked about here. If we would do those things, we can go back on that return journey. The the circumstances may not have changed in your life. Oftentimes they won't. What's the transformation that's going on here? What's the renewal that we're seeing? Where we're seeing seeing Cleopas and his friend, their hearts and their minds are being renewed by Christ coming alongside, unfolding his presence through his scripture. And then their hearts are so filled with joy as a result of that, that they have to go and talk to somebody. That's the renewal that's being talked about. When we talk about being prepared for the new season that God has for you as individuals, God has for you as your family, God has for us as a church. We're starting by getting grounded in his word, by seeing him, the truth about him in scripture and letting scripture speak about the truth about us, even though there's parts of that truth we don't want to face right now. So let me just close with the exhortation to say whatever road that you're on, God is there with you. Whatever solution or confusion that you have, if you allow the Lord to unpack the scriptures, if you meet with him, start with the Psalms, allow him to do that. He will show you his presence and the hope and the future that he has for you. And as you allow him to do that, he will use you in the lives of those you care about to provide them with the same hope in the future. He's preparing you for that life of impact and the life of ministry so that when we are in heaven, there will be new people that you haven't seen today who will be up there saying, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for walking along the road. Thank you for being part of abundant life for that season and utilizing your gifts so that together we all grow up in the fullness of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.